Welcome back to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. Today, we're taking you through the best bits of your music and people by Derek Sivers, Creative and Considerate Fame. Third Derek Sivers book for us after our first ever episode, Anything You Want. And then I think last year, we did Hell Yeah or No. Now, we're talking about your music and people, which is a book about music because Derek Sivers studied music. Uh, he built up this big company, CD Baby, for musicians to sell their music, and then he sold that company for about 20-odd mil. Uh, but at the same time as being a musician, he was also a business person. So we're, we're talking about the blend here of music and business. So when Sivers was studying as a, young, as a young lad, he studied music and art at university, and they were forced to take classes in business and marketing. And you could imagine all the arty students, they found these businessy subjects like a total waste of time. They didn't want to sell out in their careers because... They didn't want to treat art as a business. They just wanted to go out there and make art and put it into the world. But Sivers, he started to see a crossover between the world of marketing and the world of making music and art. So this book is specifically about music and it's about how you can become a musician, how you can write good songs, make good art, how you can get your art out there into the world. So if you want to be a musician, this book's perfect for you. But if you don't want to be a musician, like I'd say 99.5% of people probably don't have that dream anymore, neither of us do, then music is really just a metaphor. These lessons are really about business, it's about marketing, it's really sort of the ground level approach to marketing and especially starting out like a new sort of solo business, starting it from the ground up. Imagine for a second that you see a caged feather on a museum wall, a pretty esoteric sort of thing, and there's a sign that says underneath, the artist is a political activist in jail. You think, oh, that's a pretty interesting feather there. <laughs> but then imagine that same caged feather again, but instead the sign says something different. It says, the artist is a high school kid in Florida. That feather looks pretty shit now, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or imagine that the only way to see it, you crawl through this deep, dark tunnel uh, that opens this door into a room of mirrors where this caged feather is uh, held on by a single thread reflected across all the mirrors. That same piece of art is now looking pretty sick. Absolutely. So, same feather, very different perceptions. I think it's pretty similar. Imagine if you uh, go on a three-day trek right up the mountain and you put all your effort and energy into it and you get up there and it's a beautiful view that you soak in comparing to take the Land Rover up there in a 30-minute <laughs> drive and you get up there and it's a, it's a totally different experience. Um, that's because the perceptions are different. Definitely. So, the way you present your art and what people know about your art changes how they perceive it. Therefore, the art doesn't end at the edge of the canvas. So, Sivers in his music and art class, all the artsy people thought we just make art, that's our job done. He says that really creative decisions continue all the way through to the end. So, once your art is done, the creativity continues. So, if you go through the, the steps of whatever your creation might be, at the very, very start, it begins as a tiny idea for something like a song. You flesh it out into a full song, you give it layers and instruments, you choose the texture. You come up with an album title and the visual look of your photos and videos. Every step here has been part of the creative expansion for your original idea. For a lot of people, this is where it might end uh, in terms of creativity. But actually, this is not necessarily the finish line. This could be the starting line. So the way you communicate what you've created into the world, how you make your music available, whatever your music might be, and the stories you tell about your music and yourself. This creativity is all part of the communication. It's a continuation of your creation. It's not just that you've been creative this whole way, now you stop and you just upload it to Spotify and hope someone listens. You've got to continue this creativity in your marketing. So, marketing is really the final extension of your art. At a musician's gathering in Memphis, 
Derek Sivers, he met a lot of people complaining that their online distribution platforms weren't earning as much money as they hoped. Uh, they were on Spotify and places like that. And obviously, they were getting some downloads, but they weren't getting the money they'd like as artists. Then he met a musician at this uh, gathering that said he'd sold 8,000 copies of his album all by himself. No distributor, no label, no manager, no website, just him. And Sivers said, well, how the hell did you do it? And he said, well, I just slowly drive around the city every night, windows down, playing the music loud. And whenever he sees someone like on the street bobbing their head or really getting into their music, he pulls over and says, hey, do you want to buy a CD? Mm. <laughs> Mate, he's really putting these other whinges to, to shame, isn't he? Because he's just showing what it means to be resourceful. When you hear a story about that and then you look at the musicians complaining about how hard it is to sell music these days, I think everyone could take a feather out of this bloke's cap who's uh, you know, showing us what it means to be resourceful. Yeah, there's there's two completely different approaches, like approach A or approach B. When it comes to cost, person A says, I spent $60,000 making this album. Person B says, I spent $60 making this album. When it comes to connections, person A says, I'm not some Hollywood schmoozer. I don't have connections in the industry. Person B says, my barber knew the promoter's wife, so it took some persistence, but now we're playing at this big festival. When it comes to barriers, person A says, uh, they said we weren't allowed to just walk in. We have to be on the list. Person B says, we just showed up with all our gear and we wouldn't leave until they eventually said okay. So when it comes to opportunities, some people say, look, there's just no way. Some people say, I figured out the way. Yeah, and that's the way you want to be, person B. So being resourceful, it means being creative, rebellious, determined, and unstoppable. And it means asking for help and not waiting for help. So creating music is one half of the equation. The other half is the business part. And this is where we need to be grounded in understanding that we need to be somewhat profitable if we want our music to last. So there's two parts of the equation. Yeah, it really ties into that resourcefulness. A musician uh, was speaking to Derek. Obviously, Derek was a, a big dog in the music world in terms of CD Baby, where he created this huge company where all these people sold their music. And one person came up and very proudly said, this album, it cost me $80,000 to make. I spent two years pulling it all together. Everything is top notch. We use the finest recording studios and the best recording team in the world. And she thought that was an impressive thing to say. But Derek was saying as soon as she said $80,000 and two years, he completely lost hope in her ability mm -hmm. to make any kind of money. Yeah, Derek, mate, he's, he started there. He's been resourceful and he'd be much more impressed if she said, look, I made this album for $800 because she's proving that she can be resourceful and isn't being so wasted in how she spends her effort. And I think it'd, he'd be a lot more impressed as well if instead of saying two years, she said it took two months and then she did another six in that mm. time instead of just spending that whole time making this one album. So we don't need to impress people with how much we spend. We can impress people with how little we spend. Same goes for the tools. The audience can't hear the difference between cheap and expensive equipment. So saying that you need a specific expensive tool is just another excuse to avoid the real work. Remember when I started surfing, I had the best wetsuit, the best surf or the best mm. everything. Paddled out there and I just couldn't go anything. I'd just fumble around and, and swim back in and just be absolutely pointless. And uh, I wasn't impressing everyone, anyone <laughs> when I was uh, going out with the most expensive tools. <laughs> Until you get up on the wave, nothing really counts, does it? <laughs> same, I reckon same as podcasting. Like a lot of people could say, oh, I haven't got the right equipment. I haven't got the right microphone. I need to wait until I can get started. Compare that to the resourceful person who just whips out the iPhone, makes a recording, puts it up. They're two completely different approaches. You don't need to have everything perfect. And often searching for something perfect just stands in the way of you actually getting started. Another one of the reasons a lot of people are waiting and uh, putting the blame on others is just assuming that somebody is going to come out mm. and, and help you or it's on them to give you the leg up and the opportunity. 
Yeah, some entrepreneurs, they're waiting for an investor to come and give them some funding or musicians, they're waiting to find a manager or they're waiting to get signed by a label. But Siva says, just assume that nobody's coming. You got to go out there and assume that it's all up to you. It doesn't mean it's hopeless. It doesn't mean you're never going to get anywhere. It just means if you're going to make this work, then you have to make this work. Your man, Aaron Rolston, there's a story here. He assumed no one was coming because he was trapped in a remote canyon for five days. So he was stuck there for 127 hours and he had to cut off his own arm to escape because he knew no one was going to come and rescue him. So if he believed that someone's going to come, someone's going to come, he probably wouldn't have chopped off his arm and he probably would have just waited and perished. Having said that, You'd be pretty pissed off at the very end as you're severing it off. If <laughs> someone rocked up. Slice. Yeah. Someone comes around the corner. <laughs> hey. Hey, Aaron. <laughs> it's a fair risk, isn't it? But, but I suppose, like, yeah. It's a wrong assumption to have. Wrong assumption. If he, if he just kept waiting, he probably kept waiting until he ran out of food, until he ran out of water, until he just literally just shriveled up with his arms still stuck in the canyon. When you assume no one is going to help, you have to use all of your strength and resources. You can't wait because there's nobody to wait for and this mindset keeps you focused on all the things that you can control and not the outside circumstances. So, it's really a form of productive pessimism in a way. Yeah, you're almost expecting the worst which makes you go out and try to create something good out of it. Of course, it's smart to ask for help when you can, ask your fans, ask your friends, ask people you know inside the industry, ask for help, ask for advice, ask for support. But remember that you can't ever count on any of those people to magically do all the work for you or magically introduce you to this one person who's going to save your entire career. You can never count on somebody else to magically do everything for you. I think this is the shift in mindset you need. You go out and do all the work yourself because then if one day somebody does come along and help, it just amplifies all your efforts. On the radio, Your music speaks for itself. People hear the music, they decide if they like it or not. Similarly, in a concert, your music speaks for itself too because people are hearing your music, they're watching you perform, your music does all the talking. But in pretty much every other situation, unless your music is already in people's ears, your music can't speak for itself, which means you need to do the talking for it. So if you're not Beyonce just cracking hits and everyone's talking about it, at the beginning, the words that describe your music or your art That has to do a lot of heavy lifting early days. So your online description needs to be so interesting that people stop what they're doing to Mm. click. I mean, that's a very big task again to do. You need to give people something that can spread via word of mouth to tell their friends. So this description needs to be so memorable that people go and search for you later. And the big wigs in whatever industry it might be, they need to read the written description and it needs to be so intriguing that they feel that you're worth their time to stop their busy day and go and check you out. Yeah, if we go back to the artsy students at at university that Sivers was with, they might say, I've made this awesome song, everybody just should listen to it and they'll be amazed. But of course, nobody's going to do that unless you actually market it properly. So, that's where the marketing and the description comes into it. Mm. Same goes for, I guess, for a book. You know, if if you're already reading the book, the book speaks for itself, but to actually make somebody want to either buy the book or pick up the book and read the book, it needs to have this compelling description. Same for like a, uh, a chef, you know, if you're eating the food, it tastes delicious, But to actually get someone to go into that restaurant and buy that food, you need to have some way of describing it that compels them to take action. And it completely changes the perception. I think of the um, best antipasto board that I've ever had in my life was Italian artisans in Albert Park. Did you have that one day with me ever? No, but you've told me about it 12 times. Have I? (laughs) Well, there you go. There you go. I'm telling you about it again because they... uh, 
made it easy enough and intriguing enough to bring it up 12 times. <laughs> but they described every single element on that board and each had such a compelling story behind it. It wasn't just a piece of cheese. All of a sudden, you're having this succulent thing made in Italy and, you know, <laughs> not, maybe they did a better job than you. They did a better job than maybe you get the point. But that's the, that's the thing is you need to not just think of here's a product here you just go and get it because I've made something so good that people should just get it. You have to then think about how do you package this up? How do you explain it to people? And how do you explain it to people in a way that you can then give them a story to tell their friends? You know, as the as the anti pasto board, they gave you a story that you're then able to share as well, and that. Uh, maybe if you did a better job, then people would be intrigued to go and to go and grab that as well. I think people couldn't go there and ask the <laughs> anti-pasto board. So that's you telling it. But there's always going to be, as you've created the art, you're going to get asked um, a very common question. And again, in the context of music, it is what kind of music do you do? You're always going to get the question. I think a lot of people don't have a good answer to what the description is prepared in advance. I remember when we were writing our book, particularly mm. early days, and it, 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 it come up. Mate, I had a very weak answer very early days. I wish I could just zoom back then and um, say it because I'm sure they'd be intrigued enough to actually buy it right now. But I definitely turned them away because my answers at the time were just so weak um, because we hadn't put any effort in very early days to describing what we were actually doing. Yeah. If someone says, oh, if we say, oh, we wrote a book and someone says, what's the book about? And, and we just say, oh, we, you know, we read a whole bunch of books and put a whole bunch of ideas together. It's pretty weak. Yeah. yeah. It doesn't really give you much. Whereas if you say... Have you ever learned something and just thought, why the hell didn't someone tell me this sooner? And mm. we say, you know, we've come across these ideas all the time that we wish we had learned in school. That instantly triggers with someone because I'm sure a lot of people think they learned something in their 20s or 30s that they wish they had have known earlier. If you give shitty descriptions, it means you've lost them and you've had the chance to make a new fan and you blew it. They won't remember you because you didn't give them anything worth remembering and you lost them because you didn't make them curious whatsoever. Yeah, if someone says, what type of music do you do? And you say, we're a cover band or you say, oh, we play a little bit of everything or, you know, we just play the the main pop songs. Like, that's pretty boring. But if you say, we sound like the smell of fresh bread or if you say, we're the soundtrack to the final battle to save the earth or if you say, we sound like Bob Marley smoking a Turkish pipe, chewing some Japanese candy. <laughs> They're a lot more intriguing. They're just, oh, we play a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Oh, yeah, no doubt. You probably look like a bit of a Fruit Loop to some people. <laughs> But you're not going to be just boring and bland. You're, at the very least, you're piquing their interest a little bit because a creative description is going to suggest to them that your music is also going to be creative. So make up a curious answer to that common question. You know they're going to ask it. You know it's going to come up because you've been working on it and you say what you've been up to recently. So make sure you've prepared for these moments. We love it when someone hates the thing, same things that we hate, especially if that thing is popular. Uh, we're drawn to the confidence of someone who's not trying to go out and please anyone. We admire the person who's strong with a defiant stand. Yeah, imagine if imagine if you, you as your band, you say, hey, if you like Justin Bieber, you're going to hate us. It, yeah. it really like opposes you to a lot of people then who hate Justin Bieber are going to like you. Well, we should use that. <laughs> What's, what do we say? If you like, what's that um, housewives of whatever? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, uh, maps, maps. Maps, marriage at first sight. That's oh, what I'm thinking. Maps. If you love, if you if you love marriage at first sight, then you're gonna hate our book. We should use that. It's not. It's not a bad one. I reckon we workshop that. It's all to say, most musicians and artists and creators are just trying to go out there and please everyone. So when you're not trying to please everyone, it suggests that you've got the talent to back up some of your confidence. 
You can be the doorman of, say, your exclusive club and maybe you refuse anyone who is over 30 years old or under 50. Maybe you refuse anyone wearing a suit or maybe anyone who doesn't have a tattoo, you don't let them in. But um, it's essentially discrimination is another way of putting this, <laughs> but uh, it's got some positive context in marketing. I think we're, we're scared to exclude people because we think anyone who's going to buy our stuff, that's good because that's another sale. But if you try to please everyone, you end up pleasing no one. So it's better to actually consciously exclude specific people because that makes the people you do include feel more included. Uh, even if you exclude 99% of people who could possibly buy your stuff, 1% is still a massive market. 1% of the world population is like 75 million people. So if you boiled it down to even 0.1% and you can exclude 99.9% of people, that 0.1% is going to be extremely uh, enthusiastic audience for you to sell to. The world's attention is a big squishy pile of apathy, right? Everyone's just walking around, just apathetic, and you need to cut through it and reach them like a sharp knife. So if you're going to call attention to whatever you're doing, you need to cut through all the muck and all the crap that's out there. And the problem is if you're well-rounded or you're trying to be a well-rounded person who's trying to please everyone, you're not going to be able to cut through anything. You're using a little butter knife to cut through a, a heavy, thick steak. <laughs> so you need to be sharply, sharply defined like a knife is. Here's a blunt knife. Here's a horrendous example. You got a someone whose name's Mary. You put an album. It's called My Songs by Mary, Oof. and the album cover is your face. And the music is, you know, it's great quality, good songs, songs about your life, good stuff. But then when someone asks you, what's your music about? You say, oh, I do a little bit of everything. I play all styles. That's a shocking knife. That's a shocking knife. Doors aren't opening. People aren't rushing to buy this thing because Mary's at the moment a nobody. Her face means nothing. Her name means nothing. Her album title means nothing. Her genre means nothing. It's just blunt, mate. She's not cutting through anything. Mate, he's a ripper. He's a very good knife. Um, let's say instead that you write nine songs about food. And uh, you put out an album called Sushi, Souffle, and seven other songs about food. So you're on super niche here. And you recorded all the vocals in the kitchen. And your backstory is you quit cooking school to be a musician. Now you've got an angle for promotion. Now people can remember you and recommend it. There's a story behind it. It's a pretty silly example, mm. uh, admittedly. But you can kind of see how this will be so much easier to promote because you've got a sharp, well-defined knife that can cut through all the apathy. Yeah, you might think by being a bit eclectic, by being a bit different, makes you obscure and makes people not interested and you'd rather just go and try and be something to everyone. You might just think, oh, I've got so much to offer the world. I don't want to limit myself to something so niche. But really, he says, look at some of the biggest uh, uh, musicians and biggest artists of all time, David Bowie, Miles Davis, Madonna, Prince, Joni Mitchell, Paul Simon. They obviously had so much talent, such a broad breadth of talent that they did so many different things. But what they actually did was they were super sharp every time. So they had different phases where they're extremely sharp and then they changed to a completely different phase, but they were still very sharp. They weren't just saying, I'm all things to all people. They said, this is what I am right now. Come and get it if you enjoy it. So we can sell our art by solving a specific need. So let's say if you've got instrumental music, it sells best if it's to fit a purpose. For example, massage music sells well, yoga music sells well, instrumental Christmas music sells well. Now you're selling something that's solving a specific problem. Or imagine two candle makers. Let's say you got one and she says, my candles have only the finest wax with the best quality wick. And the other says, these are prayer candles. Light one whenever you pray. So there are going to be dozens of people who might buy the first, but there's going to be millions of people around the world who might buy the second. There are a lot of times at work, 
in the office, when we used to go into the office, that I would step into the office and think it's so bloody hot in here, I would have to take off my jacket, maybe strip off the fleece knit or whatever I was wearing at the time and thinking it's so bloody hot here, I need to go and turn down the turn down the heater. At the same time though, somebody else, a colleague, she's saying, oh man, it's so cold in here, she's putting on her jacket, she wants to turn the heater up. But obviously for me, I was thinking, how could you possibly be cold uh, when I'm sitting here almost sweating through my jacket? The point is that sometimes when we're feeling something, it's pretty hard to imagine that somebody else is thinking or feeling something different. Absolutely. I'm feeling quite cold now and I wish we had a heater on in here. Actually, <laughs> I'm, pretty, I'm pretty warm actually. I'm ready to take the jumper off. There you go. But <laughs> this is all to say that a lot of things out there like uh, what the temperature, it's subjective, it's an opinion and it's not necessarily fact. And this is the same when it comes to whatever art you're putting together. You've put so much energy and effort into it and you think it's perfect because you made it and it's super valuable to you. And it might be hard to imagine that it's not valuable to others. It feels like a fact that you've kicked a goal and you've kicked ass. But the truth is some people out there is going to think what you put together is a piece of shit. Like Mandeep who gave us a two-star on Goodreads. <laughs> yeah, it was a bit stiff, I reckon. But <laughs> we'll hang some more shit on those artsy students who are making their music. They just create something. They think it's God's gift. They think everybody's going to love this thing. They put it out there and they, they wonder why people aren't buying this because it's so magical and so amazing. Maybe they're realizing that it's only valuable to them but not valuable to others. So the good news is that uh, there's two different approaches to solving this problem. One is to stop thinking about yourself and start focusing on how you can make your music more valuable to other people. As I was saying, art doesn't end at the edge of the canvas. Keep your creativity going. Constantly ask, how can I add more value to your, your audience? And you might come up with a range of different ideas on how you can make it better based on feedback from your audience. And if you do this repeatedly, get feedback, make some tweaks, make some changes, pay attention to the feedback, you're going to become more valuable over time. So that's solution one is focusing on making it more valuable to others or solution two is to stop expecting it to be valuable to others. Just realize that you're doing it just for you and not for others. Like go and get your money elsewhere, work a part-time job and just create your music or create your art or create your business as something that you enjoy. Um, Sivers says here, sex with his girlfriend is very valuable to him and to her hopefully um, but he, luckily he's not trying to make it valuable to other people. So the other solution is just to realize that, hey, this is just for you and then maybe it's not going to be valuable to others so you can stop worrying about that altogether. Another piece of advice from Sivers is once you've made it, you don't promote until people can take action because a lot of people out there, uh, musicians, they say they want to do an advanced promotion. They want to tell people about the new album before it's even been released and though uh, it might be exciting to, to tell people about what you're going to pull out into the world and you think it's going to generate excitement to them but a lot of the time, uh, quite the opposite tends to happen. Yes, they say, hey, I've got this new music coming, check out this music. The person asked, well, where is it? Where can I buy it? They said, nah, not yet, but it's coming soon. It's coming soon. They said, well, why are you telling me now? He said, well, come on, get excited. This big announcement's going to come. Get ready for the big drop. Two months later, you drop the big announcement. It's ready to buy. Check out my new music. But then the person says, I'm pretty sure I've already heard about this. This is not new. I'm going to delete this one. Yeah, that sounds pretty familiar, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> the two-year advanced book launch, eh? Hey? Uh, I wish, I wish well. we'd read this earlier because, uh, what, it was like a year out. We're like, the book's almost here, the book's almost here. Mm. 12 months later, the book was finally there. But uh, I think we, were, we thought we were close at the time. Mate, luckily, I think we did all right in a few other areas and uh, sales are going well beyond what we thought they would. So we're pretty happy with that. 
So instead of doing that and making that stuff up, record your music and start conversations with the people who will promote it eventually. Don't pitch them anything or say anything's coming. Just get to know them and in the meantime, you can prepare your marketing plan but uh, don't release it yet. Just get everything in place and once you've put it together and you've got a call to action, finally, you can tell everyone and do your promotion and you can do it all in one big bang. Mm. Actually, a bit, bit of behind-the-curtain look as well. had a conversation with someone who wanted to do some advertising on the podcast and they said, we're this new startup, this brand new app we're making. We want to get our name out there. Oh, actually, you can't download the app yet. It's, got, it's a few months away. So, I said, maybe that's a, I think that's a shocking idea. You don't just get the name out there but then everyone tries to download the app. The app's not ready. They just wait, 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 wait. I think wait until the app's ready and then start the marketing and the announcements. Yeah, and it's kind of wasted the the reach out in the sense when they you know when they come back, it's uh, might be lost because it came up in the episode. We might give it another shot. If they... <laughs> <laughs> They're probably listening, man. We don't want to we don't want to hang shit on them. Uh, there's a funny Sivs has got a funny story about how he prices. Like it's pretty hard to like price a service. Uh, we did that book, uh, Selling the Invisible, which is all about service marketing. But if you think it's pretty hard to price a service, especially like music, like how much is it worth for you to go and play some music? He had uh, a request, a college from Ohio, which was about a 12-hour drive from where Sivers lived. And they said, well, how much does it cost for you to come and do a two-hour show? And he said, 1500 bucks." And then they said, oh, it's a bit much. How much would you charge for just a one-hour show? And he said, two grand. <laughs> and they're like, what? No, no, you're performing less, like half as much, not more. And he says, yeah, exactly. I actually really like performing. I don't like the 12-hour drive each way. Um, so for me to drive all that way for a one-hour show, it's not really as valuable to me. If I'm going to do a two-hour show, slightly, it's suddenly more exciting. So it's a, it's a bizarre pricing philosophy, but it's something to think about. So his point here, business is creative. You can do really anything you want and there's no need to adhere to the existing norms about what pricing and the way things are is meant to be. Um, you can inject a bit of your personality and your own philosophies in the way you do business. Sivis is a pretty weird sort of dude, super interesting guy, super creative and uh, yeah, you, the person you sit back and go, what? Who's this bloke? <laughs> Hang on, you're doing half as much work, and you're charging me almost, and you're charging me more. It doesn't doesn't make a lot of sense, but uh, you know that's just one of the one of the quirks. And another vital thing when it comes to pricing is to emphasize meaning over price. There was a musician who used to perform gigs, and at the end, he'd have his fifteen dollars CD. At the end of the show, he'd say, "Hey, if you like this, go and grab a CD." He'd sell you know ten or fifteen CDs each night, and it was okay. But then his manager says. Maybe you should try a completely different approach. He said, tell the audience it's really important to us that you have our CD. We work so hard on it and we're so proud of it that we want you to have it no matter what. So pay what you want. But even if you have no money, please take one tonight. Yeah, it's a completely different approach. It's not saying this is worth 15 bucks, please buy one. It's saying, hey, we really want you to have this. Whatever you pay, that's fine. But it was super important to us. We worked so hard of it. We're so proud of it. You're emphasizing the meaning over the price and then people are going to grab it. You say this at the end of the show. So you said, you know, don't leave without a CD. You know, grab a CD, pay whatever you want. Just make sure that you grab a CD. So, of course, it changed uh, as you'd imagine. Started off with 300 bucks a night. Now he's selling over $1,200 a night on average. And there's a lot more people who are uh, out there with his, his art that he's put into the world. Yeah, that's where the next bit comes is that instead of 10 or 15 people getting getting your CD, suddenly everyone's got your CD. So say, you know, 100 people in the room, they leave with your CD, they listen to it later, they show their friends, they become an even bigger fan. And then the next time you go back and play a gig, you've got a whole bunch of new fans coming along. So you need to emphasize the meaning, not the price. 
Often if there was a new act creating a new album and wanting to get onto CD Baby for the very first time, they would often call up Derek or call up customer service and ask, how much does the average artist on CD Baby sell? And often the easy way to do it is they'd say, well, okay, well, there's been $85 million worth of sales through the uh, through the website. There's 250,000 artists available. So on average, that's like 340 bucks per album. But those numbers, those averages, it's not really telling the full picture because there was actually two completely different approaches to selling CDs that had two completely different results. So some of these artists in the talent pool releasing their music and whatever they'd made so far, for them, they might have been just at the starting line in the race. They've made their music and then the gun goes off. They work it. They spend hours a day pushing, promoting and selling, reaching new people in any way they possibly can. For those types who thought they were just starting, the average income through one little store was $5,000 and 50 of them were making $100,000 each. Yeah, so that first approach is like making the music is like the training, uh, like the Olympics, you know, you've, you train for four years, you're ready when the gun goes off, that race is the marketing, so you're at the starting line, not the finishing line. But then the other type of artist, they saw it as a finishing line. They saw the race was actually making the music and now putting it out into the world, that's the finish line. They've got to the end, they just put it up there and hope somebody's going to buy it. They don't do any more work after that, they finish their race. For those types of people, the average income was $20 and that's mm. probably they bought a copy, their mum bought a copy and that's yep. where it ended. Yeah, that's it. So, yeah, the question like how much does the average person make, it depends on the person, the mindset and the approach they're taking. So, this is the best predictor about how far you're going to go with whatever you're making and that's the answer to the question, where are you? Are you at the starting line or the finishing line of your race? Mm-hmm. 